Good morning. It is good to see you all this morning. Good to be with you. It's always good to worship the Lord together. A few weeks ago, we began a sermon series going through the book of Galatians. And our text for this Sunday was supposed to be Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And our preacher for this Sunday was supposed to be Pastor Nate. Unfortunately, Pastor Nate's under the weather. And so uh, I'm stepping in this morning. However, as Nate began preparing um, that sermon for that text, we are hoping that, Lord willing, he'll be able to preach that text next Sunday. Um, so in light of that, I will be preaching a standalone sermon today that I hope will complement our sermon series going through Galatians. I was grateful for Candace's prayer this morning before um, we uh, began our first service, whereby she reminded us that things like this happen because of God's plan. It's not merely that we have to adapt to whatever happens, it's that we get to trust and have confidence that the Lord is doing as he pleases. So I appreciated that, that encouragement. It was a wonderful reminder. <clears throat> I'll be preaching from a text I referenced two Sundays ago, which is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And Paul most likely wrote his letter to the Ephesians sometime between A.D. 60 and 62, which means it was written roughly 12 years after he wrote the letter to the Galatians. One of the things I mentioned last week about the letter to the Galatians is the progression we see. You can divide the letter into three parts. The first part being autobiographical, whereby Paul talks about his own experience and his own calling and how he came to become an apostle. The second part in the middle, chapters 3 and 4, really focus on the true gospel where he's unpacking the center, the core, the nub of the true gospel. And then the third part, 5 and 6, really focus on unpacking the implications of the gospel or how we are called to live as Christians in light of the gospel. And the first part, which is autobiographical, is meant to establish his authority as an apostle. He was telling his story so the Galatians would understand that he was called by Jesus Christ to be an apostle and that the message he preached, he received by way of revelation from Jesus. The second part where he uh, begins to unpack the truths of the gospel in chapters 3 and 4, or I'm sorry, uh, kind of partly in chapter 2, also in 3 and 4, I think we see the, the nub or the, cent the center of that section in chapter 2, verse 16, where he wrote, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And again, I think that really is the, the nub of the gospel truth section. It might even be the nub or the center of the whole letter. And what Paul taught there, he continued to teach throughout his ministry. In the passage we are going to look at this morning from Ephesians, which was, again, written 12 or so years later, he continued to emphasize this teaching. I'm sure that over the course of 12 years, Paul changed in numerous ways. I'm sure the Lord grew him and matured him in the faith, sanctified him. I'm sure that there were discernible ways that Paul had changed over the course of those 12 years. But the message did not change 
change. Despite the fact that he preached to a wide variety of people in a wide variety of contexts, facing a wide variety of circumstances, the message he preached remained the same. And the reason that the message he preached remained the same is because it was a message that was given to him by way of revelation from Jesus Christ. And therefore, Paul did not have the authority to change the message. He didn't have the authority to change it, to make adjustments to it, to improve upon it. No, as Jesus revealed to him this message, he was called to faithfully proclaim the message that Jesus revealed to him. So our passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I will go ahead and read this, and I would encourage you to follow along. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In these verses, Paul continued to emphasize God's incredible grace toward Christians by describing our condition before we were saved, God's work in saving us, and our new identity in Christ now that we are saved. In verses 1 through 3, Paul spoke to the Christians in Ephesus regarding their condition apart from Christ. In other words, he spoke of their sinful condition before they were saved. And I think the first thing we should notice in our passage is the first two words. Paul said, and you. And when he said, and you, he was referring to all the recipients of the letter, which was meant to be to all of the Christians living in and around Ephesus. In verses 1 through 3, he was not referring to certain sinners who were particularly bad before they became Christians. He was referring to all of them, and it didn't matter that he didn't know all of them personally. He could say with confidence that his words describing Christians before they were saved applied to all of them. What we see in these first verses is a leveling of the playing field, so to speak. These verses serve as a great equalizer. It's silly for us to compare ourselves to others, either positively or negatively. Oh, well, I'm not as bad as that person, but I'm not as good as that person. It's a silly thing to do because it's not as though there are multiple tiers of sinners and in the top tier are the people who only commit small sins but are actually pretty good with most Christians coming from this top tier. And then in the second tier are people who are clearly not as good as the people in the top tier 
but are not terrible. And occasionally people become Christians from the second tier. And then there is the bottom tier, which represents the worst of the worst. And very rarely does someone become a Christian from the bottom tier. Whereas people may view themselves and view others in these categories. We see here in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 that God does not. Paul described the sinful condition of every Christian before they were saved in dire terms. He did not mince words. Instead, he used emphatic language to impress upon his audience the depths of their depravity. We see in these verses that without Christ, we are dead, disobedient, and doomed. He began by saying, you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. We are not born spiritually good, and we are not even born spiritually neutral. Every single human being is born with a sinful nature, every, and every single one of us acts according to our nature. Because we are born with a sinful nature, and because we sin according to our sinful our nature, we are spiritually dead. We are cut off from God who does not tolerate sin. Our sin alienates us from God and leaves us in a completely helpless state. One of my favorite movies is The Princess Bride. And one of the memorable scenes in that movie is when Fezzik, played by Andre the Giant, and Inigo Montoya bring Wesley, who seems to be dead, to go visit Miracle Max. And they desperately need him to be alive. It appears on all accounts that he's dead, but they're just hoping that maybe somehow Miracle Max can do something to bring him back to life. So they bring him to Miracle Max. Miracle Max does an examination of him and then delivers some good news. He says, it turns out your friend is only mostly dead. He said, if he's all, if he's all the way dead, there's only one thing you can do. And they said, what's that? He said, search his pockets for loose change. But the good news was that he was only mostly dead. Therefore, he was not outside the reach of Miracle Max's abilities. And so Miracle Max was able to help him and use one of his remedies and bring Wesley back to life. But when it comes to our spiritual condition apart from Christ, there is no such thing as mostly dead. We are in a completely helpless state. And just as a dead person can do nothing to bring himself up out of the grave, so a spiritually dead person can do nothing to make himself spiritually alive. We are not able to revive ourselves, and we are not able to revive each other. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead, and dead people can do absolutely nothing to make themselves alive again. But not only did Paul describe us as dead apart from Christ, he also described us as disobedient. We are disobedient because we follow the course of this world. When we consider the patterns, values, and governments in our world, we can come up with countless examples that point to the reality that we live in a world that does not seek to joyfully honor God by submitting to his word. The course of this world is a course that tries to run away from God and get out from under his rule. People don't naturally want to humble themselves and order their lives according to God's commands. We live in a world that has rebelled against God. And we who live in this world naturally follow the influences of this world that carry us away from God like a rushing river downstream. We are easily swept up and carried away. The ways of the world and God's ways are opposed to each other. And in our sinful state, we follow the ways of the world. Paul went on to specify the one who is exerting influence in the world and leading those who are disobedient to God. In verse 2, he referred to him as the prince of the power of the air. He used 
this title to refer to Satan, who is the ruler of the cosmic realm of evil. Satan is the one who works to lead mankind away from God and into rebellion. This is what he does. This was his work in the Garden of Eden, where he led Adam and Eve to disobey God's explicit command. This is what he attempted to do unsuccessfully when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He hates God, and he uses his energy to turn mankind away from God. The evil one wants us to disobey God. His success is our ruin. But we can't only blame him for our disobedience. In verse 3, Paul went on to say, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Not only have we been swept away into rebellion by following the course of this world, not only have we been influenced by Satan himself, but we also rebel against God because we indulge our own sinful desires. Elsewhere in the Bible, the passions of the flesh are associated with sins such as anger, jealousy, coveting, sexual immorality, idolatry, strife, dissension, and drunkenness. We are all prone to indulge in the sins of the flesh because we all pursue what we desire, and what we naturally desire is contrary to God's ways. In James 1, 13 through 15, we read, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We are easily tempted because we already have evil desires within us. And when we are tempted, we find ways to justify indulging those desires. We are disobedient because we follow the course of the world, give in to the influence of Satan, and we indulge the sinful desires of our flesh. We have seen that we are dead, and we have seen that we are disobedient, and in verse 3, we see that we are doomed. Paul wrote, we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath refers to the destiny of everyone apart from Christ. Because of our sinful nature, and because of our countless acts of disobedience, and because of our active rebellion against God, we deserve no good thing from him. The only thing we deserve is to be punished for all of eternity. The only thing we deserve from God is wrath. Does that sound harsh to you? Why do we need to warn people regarding the wrath of God? Why must God exercise his wrath against unrepentant sinners? In order to understand the wrath of God, we need to understand the character and nature of God. God is holy, righteous, and just. He is pure and he is perfect in all his ways. In him there is no sin, stain, or blemish. Every sin we commit is therefore a violation of his commands and an affront to his character and nature. Every sin we commit is a rejection of his authority over us and his purposes for us. He does not tolerate evil. He does not turn a blind eye to our wickedness. He doesn't sweep our sins under the rug. He is a perfect judge who sees all things, knows all things, and renders perfect judgments in every case. 
J.I. Packer wrote, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God's wrath is a right and necessary reaction to our sin. And therefore, apart from Christ, we are children of wrath. The first three verses of chapter 2 help our understanding of our doctrine of man. Whereas every human being is made in the image of God and is therefore worthy of dignity and respect, we also see that the image of God has been marred in every human being through sin. And we refer to the effects of sin using the phrase total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that we are all as sinful as we could possibly be. Because of God's common grace, sinful human beings can contribute to the good of human flourishing. And we can all point to examples of good things people do. So total depravity does not mean that we are all as sinful as we could possibly be, but it does mean that sin has tainted or corrupted every aspect of our being, including the seemingly good things we do. We are dead, disobedient, and doomed. Friends, if you want to understand the heights of the good news, then you have to understand the depths of the bad news. Paul emphasized the sinful condition of man apart from Christ in order to drive home the glorious good news of God's grace. He laid out the doctrine of total depravity like a jeweler lays out a black cloth in order to magnify the beauty of the diamond that is God's grace. After the devastating description of man's condition apart from Christ, he wrote two of the most precious words ever written or ever spoken. But God... Thankfully, the story did not end with us receiving the wrath we deserve. The story did not end because God intervened. Whereas we have rebelled against God, God has intervened on our behalf. Paul said, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christians, God has acted on our behalf because he is merciful, loving, and gracious. His mercy is so rich. His love is so great. And his grace is so amazing that even when we were dead in our sin and could contribute nothing to our salvation, God made us alive together with Christ. He is the one who brought spiritual life to our spiritually dead hearts. But he not only made us alive with Christ, he also raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Meaning he has secured a place for us with Christ in his kingdom for all of eternity. And nothing and no one 
can take that from you. You will experience trials in this life. You will experience hardship. You will experience sorrow. You will experience evil. But no matter what you experience, none of that, nothing and no one can take from you your place in Christ's kingdom for all of eternity. Our lives on this earth in its present, present form are short. The Bible describes them as a breath. We're here today, gone tomorrow. But we have eternity to look forward to with Christ in his glorious kingdom. And no one can take that from us. No circumstance can rob you of that. He did all of this for us without compromising his justice and righteousness. He is able to be merciful, gracious, and loving toward us without compromising his justice and righteousness because of Christ. At the cross, Jesus took the punishment for our sins. He absorbed the wrath of God for everyone who believes in him. When we believe in Jesus for our salvation, it's not that God turns a blind eye to our sin or sweeps it under the rug. No, a penalty must be paid for our sin. God's justice must be satisfied and his wrath must be poured out. Salvation does not come to us because God ignores our sin. Salvation comes to us because God has provided a substitute for our sin. Jesus Christ died upon the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He died upon the cross to satisfy God's justice and absorb his wrath reserved for us. Now everyone who repents of their sin and believes in Jesus will be saved instead of receiving the punishment we deserve. If you are not a Christian, we are so glad that you are here and our biggest hope and desire for you is that you will come to believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Our greatest hope and desire for you is that you will be restored to God the Father so that you will know him as your loving Father through Jesus Christ. We hope and pray that your relationship with him will be restored because that relationship has been fractured. That relationship has been fractured through sin. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. We are all guilty of sinning against the Lord and because of that, our relationship with him has been fractured but God has provided a way for that relationship to be restored in Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners like you and me. And he died on the cross to take the punishment for the sins of those who believe in him. He died in our place. He took the punishment we deserve so that we can receive the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. If you're not a Christian, repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and be saved. For Christians, we rejoice knowing that God does this glorious work in us through Christ. And in verse 7, it keeps getting better. Paul said that God has done all of this for us so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is what we get to look forward to. God is not simply in the business of getting people into heaven. God is 
saving his people to welcome them into his kingdom so that he can lavish us with his grace for all of eternity. He is going to spend forever showing us just how kind he is. He will demonstrate his goodness toward us without end. Instead of receiving the everlasting wrath we deserve, we will receive everlasting grace. This is our future. We have a future whereby God will delight to show us grace upon grace upon grace. He will spend all of eternity demonstrating how kind he is. We will have all of eternity to spend plumbing the depths of his grace and kindness toward us. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is a glorious future that awaits every one of us who believes in Christ. In verse 8, Paul went on to reiterate his point. He said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Because we are wholly undeserving of our salvation, we are saved entirely by God's grace. The means by which we are saved is faith, not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You have not brought about your salvation You have not contributed to your salvation through good works. You have literally no reason to boast. If your understanding of your salvation provides you with any reason to give yourself a little pat on the back, then you've misunderstood the gospel. Christians, We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and we can't even take credit for our faith because even our faith is a gift of God. We literally do not have one single reason to boast about our salvation. We can take exactly zero credit for it. God has saved us because he is gracious, not because we are good or because we have done good works. John Newton was born in London in 1725. At a young age, he began to pursue a licentious lifestyle, That included drunkenness, sexual immorality, and working in the slave trade as a ship captain. God miraculously saved him while out at sea. In numerous years after his conversion, he became a minister and a hymn writer. He wrote a hymn which he entitled, Faith's Review and Expectation. You might not recognize the original title, but you will certainly recognize the lyrics. He wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear The hour I first believed, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. When we've been here 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise 
than when we first begun. John Newton knew that God had saved him when he was in active rebellion against him. He was deeply pained by his sinful past, especially his participation in the heinous slave trade. He had a profound understanding that he was only saved by God's glorious grace. What I think is so incredibly important for us to remember is that you and I need grace just as much as the foul-mouthed, alcohol-abusing, sexually immoral slave trader. You and I are in no less need of God's grace than John Newton or anyone else. Believing this and reminding ourselves of this is good for our growth and maturity in Jesus Christ. In his book entitled, Deeper, Dane Ortland writes, One reason our spiritual growth grinds down is that we gradually lose a heart sense of the profound length to which Jesus went to save us, save us. When we were running full speed the other direction, he chased us down, subdued our rebellion, and opened our eyes to see our need of him and his all-sufficiency to meet that need. We were not drowning in need of being thrown a life preserver. We were stone dead at the bottom of the ocean. He pulled us up, breathed new life into us, and set us on our feet. And every breath we now draw is owing to his full and utter deliverance of us in all our helplessness and death. Jesus saves. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we never lose a heart sense of the profound length that Jesus went to save us. May we never think lightly on God's grace that he has lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. But rather, may we have a deep and profound understanding of God's kindness towards us, of his grace, which is so amazing. Let's pray that God's grace will continue to shape our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's not be stagnant or regress in our growth in Christ. But let's continually go to the well that is the gospel, which has no bottom, and continue to draw and draw and draw from that well of God's grace. Now that we are saved by grace and not by works, how are we called to live? In verse 10, Paul helps us understand our new identity and purpose now that we have been saved by grace. In verse 10, he wrote, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christians are those who have been united to Jesus Christ through faith, by the grace of God. Because God has united us to Christ, we have been made alive, we have been born again, and we are a new creation. In Christ, we have a new identity and a new purpose. In the book of Ephesians, we see that by grace, our new identity involves being children of God and co-heirs with Christ of a glorious inheritance. That is who we are. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Only dearly loved children who are co-heirs with Christ. In verse 10, we see that our purpose includes living a life 
filled with good works that God has prepared for us. Whereas we formerly walked in trespasses and sins in our spiritually dead state, we are now called to walk in good works as we are spiritually alive. Finally, finally we are free to do what we were created to do and we are free to do what we were created to do because we have been recreated in Jesus Christ. Paul wanted to make something abundantly clear. He wanted to make it abundantly clear that we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We are not called to walk in good works in order to earn our salvation, to pay God back for what he has done for us. We are called to walk in good works for the glory of God from a deep sense of joy and gratitude because of the incredible grace God has shown us in saving us. Another movie I love is Saving Private Ryan. But there is one scene that really bugs me. If you're not familiar with Saving Private Ryan, it's a World War II movie. Uh, based on Captain John Miller's fictional, historical fiction, Captain John Miller survived the Omaha Beach landing, and then he was given an assignment to lead a group of eight men to go find this missing private James Ryan. And the reason a general back in D.C. had given the order for them to carry out this mission is because James Ryan's three other brothers had already been killed in World War II, and so this general did not want this mother to be bereaved of all four sons, and so he wanted to try to bring this one son home. And so uh, Captain John Miller leads this squad of eight men, reluctant, a reluctant squad of eight men who did not want to carry out this mission. By the way, I'm going to spoil the movie. I'm not apologizing. You've had 20 years. Okay, that's, that's on you. Uh, so they're carrying out this mission. It's a dangerous mission. Some of them die along the way, and they finally find James Ryan. And he doesn't want to leave his post. He doesn't want to leave this unit that he is serving alongside to defend this particular city, to defend this key bridge. And so uh, Captain John Miller and the rest of his men decide to fight alongside James Ryan. What happens is that most of them are killed in the battle, and including John Miller. And as he is mortally wounded, sitting on the bridge, he calls uh, Private Ryan to him to give him one last message, his dying words. And as he's dying, he says to James Ryan, earn this. As in, live your life in such a way so as to earn the sacrifice that we made in giving our lives to save you. At the end of the movie, there's a scene where James Ryan is now an older man, and um, he comes to the gravesite of John Miller. By this time, you know, he's married with kids and grandkids and his family's with him and he kneels down at the gravesite of John Miller and he says, every day I think about what you said to me on that bridge. I've tried to live my life in such a way that you would approve. I hope it was enough. And he stands and he talks to his wife and he says, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And what this demonstrates is that what John Miller said to him on the bridge, I know it was fiction, okay? Just bear with me. What John Miller said to him on the bridge 
was a burden every day of his life. It was a burden that he could never get under. He could never get out from under. He carried that burden every day. Am I doing enough to earn this? And even after he'd lived a good life, he wasn't sure. He had doubts. He needed his wife to reassure him that he had lived a good life, that he had earned the sacrifices they had made on his behalf. I bring this up because I just want to make perfectly clear that this is not what God says to us. Because that's a burden we could not bear. We could never earn this. He does not say, I sent Jesus to die on the cross for you, now go and earn it. There is no possible way we could earn what he has done for us. We are not called to live a life of good work so that on the day of judgment, God will say, I don't regret my decision to save you. Because God has saved us by grace through faith in Jesus, we are now free to live a life of good works for his glory without worrying about whether or not we've earned this. And do you see, if we're doing good works to make sure we've earned this, then we are not doing good works for his glory. Because our focus is on ourselves. Our focus is on, I need to earn this. I need to make sure I've done enough. When you're trying to do good works to make sure you've earned this, your focus is on yourself, and it's not on glorifying God. But because of God's grace, he has freed you from any need whatsoever to earn this. You don't have to earn this. He has given you the freedom from that burden so that you can live a good life whereby you do good works completely and entirely for his glory. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God. It's about making much of him. Good works do serve as evidence of our salvation because God has prepared good works for those whom he has saved. Good works are also the means through which we demonstrate to the world how God has acted toward us. We have the opportunity to show the world how good God is. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are called to let our light shine. We are called to do works for the glory of God. And if you allow any notion of works-based salvation or works-based sanctification to enter your heart and mind, it robs you from that freedom that you have in Christ. And it robs you from the ability to do good works for the glory of God. As we go deeper in our understanding of God's grace toward us in our salvation, we will have an increasing desire to do good works so that others will see how good he is and join us in praising him. Brothers and sisters, having a right understanding of the gospel and our salvation fuels our growth in Christ. As we grow in our understanding of the gospel, we enjoy the freedom that we have in Christ. We enjoy the joy that we have in him, the peace that we have in him. We become increasingly selfless, focused on others. And if you examine your life and you're seeing these things diminish, then I want to encourage you to go back to 
the gospel. It is possible to get off track. And we know that because of what Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 3. In Galatians 3, verses 1 through 3, he wrote, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Oh, it's possible to begin on the right foot. To begin by believing I'm saved by grace. But then to have those attitudes and those beliefs creep into our hearts and minds, they're not always overt. They're not always explicit. Oftentimes they're subtle. We're subtly led astray. Oh, I've been saved by grace, but I better just do some good things just to make sure that I've earned it. Oh, we need to guard against that. We need to guard against that. Believe the gospel. Walk in the freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, may we be a people who continually plumb the depths of the gospel, who are continually changed and transformed by the grace of God. May he crush any notion of works-based righteousness or works-based sanctification. May he absolutely destroy that in our lives and in our church that we might be a people who are marked by the grace of God and who daily walk in the grace of God. That we might do the works that he has created for us for the good of others and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the precious gospel. We thank you that you have granted us faith to believe. And we pray that you would guard our hearts and minds. We pray that you would grow our faith. We pray you would help us to meditate on the gospel, to believe the gospel, and to rightly apply the gospel. We pray that we will be people who walk in the freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ. We pray that we will never seek to do good works in order to earn it. But rather, we pray that we will walk in the freedom that is ours in Christ so that we might do good works for the good of others and for your glory. We pray that you will do this in us, and we humbly ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.